In 2002, uh, it was kind of a New Year's celebration. I was in college at the time, and me and a friend named Jason, along with a couple other guy friends, had decided that we were going to go and, uh, and join our college football team and this major, major victory of having a New Year's Day Bowl in Florida. And so we, uh, we drove down as a group. We were going to celebrate New Year's um, Eve in Tampa and then go to the bowl game the next day. And uh, we got sunburned. It was an incredible day. We ended up winning a team that would eventually uh, that next year go on to win the national championship. And so we had this incredible like January 1st and um, continued just to celebrate. And then on January 2nd, we loaded up uh, Jason's truck and we hit the road to head back to school. And um, it's kind of this weird uh, switch of weather that happened in Florida where it started off really sunny uh, January 1st. By January 2nd, a cold front had come in and it was raining, it was starting to sleet, there was snow happening in Georgia, into South Carolina. It was this, like, this radical weather shift. And so we were leaving and the rain started coming down and then it started getting a little, little, um, a little bit more sketchy. And, but we're doing what dudes do when they've just watched their team win. Um, we're having kind of that Tommy boy moment where we're like singing in the car together and duetting it out because that's what dudes can do together when no one else is watching. And so we're just kind of in the moment. We're headed up above an overpass and it all happens in slow motion. We hear a crash and we're looking at each other as we're kind of hitting the notes. And all of a sudden it's our bodies stay in one place, so we're locked on each other, but all the world is spinning around us because for somehow we've just hit an ice patch, and on top of this overpass, we're spinning like a top, and we're spinning really fast, and we slam up against one side, and we slam up against the other, and about that time, I'm realizing my song duet is over. I realize that maybe a car behind us might be about to plow into us. We see a car whip around us, and, and we finally stop and just kind of stop on the top of this overpass and cars are whipping around us and we sit there and the car that we were driving is totaled and for hours we wait and it was one of those like incredible kind of moments where uh, we got in that car that that morning really excited we just had this incredible time together a, a large group of friends and we're headed back to school and going into junior year in our life just got upended. Jason's car destroyed. And here we are, stranded, uh, hundreds of miles from our college, stuck. What I love about that moment, not really love, but what I love about that moment is that really that captures some of us where we've been in life before too. That it's easy for us to, to kind of look back over the course of our life and maybe it's not a car wreck because you don't plan on having those, but there are other kind of wrecks in our lives that you probably didn't plan on having those either. Relationships that ended in a way that you never intended. Conversations that were derailed before they even started. That we find ourselves, just like I did that day, on the top of that overpass in a place that I never intended to go. In a circumstance and in situations that I never hoped and planned to want to be in. And that this series over the course of this month is really about that moment and how we can, as a people, as individuals, as families, as, as husbands, as wives, work through how do we deal with those moments where life, crash, and tragedy all kind of just happens in the midst of, in between the guardrails. And this series is intended because as, as hard as it was to watch that wreck play out in slow motion, and then for us to have to wait for my brother to drive hundreds of miles to come and pick us up, and all the time that was wasted, we still walked away from that wreck. 
The car didn't, but we did. And over the course of the month of October, what I want to do is journey together and talk about how do we put into our lives the same thing that protected my life that day, these guardrails that stopped what could have been a tragedy and just made it a large inconvenience. Because on the top of the overpass, if we'd kept spinning, I don't know if I'd have been here today. But I do know I wouldn't have walked away from it. And so what does it look like for us to, to start to install into our lives the same thing that protected my life almost 15 years ago? And that's what, over the course of October, we're going to look at, is how to install these, these things in our lives called guardrails in our professional lives, our personal lives, our relation, our finances, in our, our romantic life. Guardrails that are strong enough that they can direct us, that they can protect us from tragedy. And to start the conversation, I want to journey back with you to a time and a place that maybe on the surface doesn't feel like it can connect with where we are today. But even though it's 3,200 years ago, it has a lot of similarities. It's, it's a time and a storyline where new technologies are, are breaking through and redefining the world. The, the Bronze Age is transitioning to the Iron Age, and, and it has huge implications that there's a, a world that's filled with uncertainty. There's a climate of fear because of terrorism with warring factions in this community. That in the, This backdrop of uncertainty, of terrorism, of racial tension, of growing diversity, of power struggles, in the midst of all of that is one couple struggling with infertility. A couple that desperately desires to have a child and, and yet continues to face the reality that they can't. And then they do something desperate. They pray. And God does something extraordinary. He answers their prayer with a child and a promise. He says, I'm going to give you a boy, and he's going, to, he's going to be extraordinary. This kid is going to be a leader, and I'm going to give him gifts and strengths that if he uses them, he'll change the world. And it's into that story that I want us to step into. It's a story that maybe some of you have never heard before. It comes from a book in the Bible in the Old Testament called the Book of Judges. Um, the, ju the Book of Judges is written by a guy named Samuel who's essentially an editor who takes 300 years of the nation of Israel's early history and, and collects the stories. But he collects the stories with a little bit of a nuance and a twist. He collects these stories in a way that paints a, a picture of a lesson. That Samuel is a, is a teacher and he wants to make sure that the people, his students, and even in the future, us, can learn the lessons of these people so that our lives don't have to turn out the way their lives does. And so Samuel writes the, the story of Samson and, and chronicles the life of Samson in a way that gives us insight that, that Samson didn't even have. And Samson is a kid who's this miracle child. He's destined, he's born into this family. And he becomes the dominant figure in, in this time period. And Samuel writes in Judges 16 this unfolding story that I want to unpack for us this morning and, and dive into. And there are going to be some things about the story that maybe uh, catch you off guard, that they seem a little weird. Remember, this is 3,200 years ago. So there, there are traditions, there are habits, there are rhythms, there are nuances to where they are over 10,000 plus miles from where we are today that will catch us off guard. One is that you will hear conversation and dialogue about his hair, this long flowing mane. And the reason why is that because Samson is born out of this prayer being answered, um, he's, he's dedicated to God in a way that would only be akin to uh, a kid becoming a monk before he's even born. 
today. It's this kind of very holy moment where the parents say, um, our kid's going to become what's called a Nazarite, which means there's certain things that he will vow to do over the course of his life, and, and very similar to a monk today, um, that he will never cut his hair, that he'll never be around dead things because Jewish people believed that dead things were unclean, and that he, he'll abstain from alcohol. And that those three things were to be kind of the defining marks of his life. That's what he's brought up in. That's what he's trained as a Nazarite or a modern-day kind of monk. This is the, the mark of his life. And it's those details about him that will help you understand over the course of Judges chapter 16 what's happening in the undercurrent of this storyline. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can um, flip it to Judges 16. It's part of the Old Testament. It's, it's about halfway through the Old Testament. Um, if you don't have one, you have the Encounter Church app, your electronic. You can go ahead and click on message notes or the Bible. It's already preloaded for you. Um, or it's going to be on the screen behind me as I work through it. Um, I'm going to read it slowly. I'm going to read it all in one pass because I want you to kind of catch the, the story, especially since maybe you're hearing it for the first time. Sometime later, he, being Samson, fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines, who are the enemies of Israel at the time, went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength. And see how you can overpower him. See how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. See, Samson was really strong, and that was this frustrating point for the Philistines. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she cried, called out to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You've lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And he said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied them with them. And then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. And Delilah said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with a pen, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened them with a pen. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled the pen in the loom with the fabric. And then she said, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head because I've been a Nazarite, remember this modern day monk, dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would lead me. And I would become as weak as any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. And after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And as his strength left him, 
And then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. Now, this is an extraordinary story. It's one set in a different time, in a different time period that I recognize uh, may seem a little odd. That's why I wanted to unpack a little bit of the backdrop. See, Samson is a modern-day uh, mighty man in this time period. Because of this special vow to God, because he's never cut his hair, one of the things that, that has supernaturally happened to him is that he's incredibly strong, like ridiculously strong, like Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne, and MacGyver, all capped with the flowing mane of Fabio, ridiculously strong. He is an extraordinary figure. He's powerful. So powerful, in fact, that the enemies, the Philistines, fear him. And have been looking for a way for years to figure out how to capture him because he's a constant threat to them as a people. In fact, at one point, he, he kills 1,000 of their men all in one battle. He really is Jack Bauer and Jason Bourne, right? MacGyver and Fabio all wrapped into one. And they, they don't know how to get rid of him. They've tried multiple times to capture him. And they're finally at a place where they have a plan. They go to Delilah and they offer him something that gives you a glimpse of how truly extraordinarily he was and how truly extraordinarily they hated him. It says that they offered him shekels of silver, which in probably most of our, we didn't walk into church this morning checking the shekel to dollar, right, exchange rate. But the equivalent today, okay, $30 million. They offer them all the rulers of the Philistines, because the Philistines as a nation had multiple cities and each had kind of chief rulers of those cities. So each one of their cities empty out their treasury and say, this man is such a threat to us. His strength is such a threat to us that we will empty out our treasury so that we can defeat him. And it's $30 million in today's money. Delilah's name gives a little bit of a glimpse. It, it points to a lowliness, a, a kind of a, we can kind of glean from just how she's named, that she probably grew up poor or that she's not middle or upper class. And so $30 million is a significant sum of money to her. So much that she sets on a path of trying to figure out what it is that makes him so strong. Now, the Philistines look at him and recognize that he doesn't look that extraordinary. If he'd have walked out looking like the Incredible Hulk, they wouldn't have asked the question, what's the source of his strength? They would have said those biceps are the source of his strength, right? So there's something different about Samson. He doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He doesn't look like the Incredible Hulk. He kind of looks a little normal. And so because they're really superstitious people, they think it's probably some magical trait that he has or some supernatural gift or spell that's been placed on him. And that's why you see this weird interchange of him saying, oh, fresh, fresh rope that's never been like dried or never been used, that'll subdue me. And they do it. And the reason why is because in that time, they believe there's certain items that have magical properties. And so they think, oh, that must be something that's going to take the power away from them. And so he makes them look like fools over and over and over again. But Delilah doesn't give up. She's committed. And he's blind to it. And she keeps prodding and poking and questioning and 
And he keeps responding, but he keeps getting a little closer to the answer until finally in the end, he tells her everything. And he says, it's my hair. My strength comes from God, and it's all because of my hair. That hair is, an, is a physical indicator of this spiritual commitment that I have and that God has with me. And so she kind of put, puts him to sleep, calls someone with a pair of scissors, and his hair is cut, and he wakes up weak. They capture him. They blind him. What's been physically kind of, what's kind of been the role of his life where he's completely blind to Delilah. Now he's blind to everything. And he doesn't even know it. And here's this mighty man who was destined to become a leader, this dominant figure of his day, and now he's in a prison as a slave, grinding out grain. And the story of Samson, I think, is collected by Samuel for us to have this gut check moment that if someone like him, if someone with that kind of strength, with that kind of just giftedness, that kind of extraordinariness to their life, if, if he can fail, then you and I can fail too. If someone with that many strengths can still succumb to his weakness, then maybe you and I can too. And that Samson is a warning written for us, carried through history, that makes us check, that says just because I've got strengths in all these areas doesn't mean this weakness over here can't undo me. When, um, when I was eight years old, this very vivid kind of like if personal counseling moment here, if I was sitting in a counseling office, this would be one of those memories that come up. But um, I grew up in a really rough family, uh, a lot of alcoholics. And um, I remember eight years old, uh, my mom gets a phone call and my granddad, um, is, is, who's a raging alcoholic, is actually beating my grandmother. And, and so this become, quickly becomes a family kind of emergency and um, we go over, and I, I'm an eight-year-old. I just got a pellet gun. I'm starting to learn how to target practice and, and do the whole, like, you know, I'm an outdoor warrior. And, uh, and so I have this pellet gun, and we drive up to my granddad's house, and um, he runs out on the porch, and my mom jumps out of the car, and, and, and they start screaming at one another. And he's a really large man, like really, really large. And I'm, I'm just this small eight-year-old kid, and he's getting closer and closer and closer to my mom. And I watch his hand come up like he's about to hit her. And I scream at him as loud as I can. And I'm like, if you touch my mom, I'll shoot you with my pellet gun. Which seemed like a really like, threatening thing for an eight-year-old to say. Now, he could have snapped my pellet gun. And it probably wouldn't have hurt him at all. But I just remember with everything in me, pulling out that gun and pointing it at him and said, if you touch her, I'll shoot you. And I remember leaving that day and, and thinking to myself, sitting in the back seat, like not even sure how to process what just happened, but thinking to myself, like if that's what alcohol does, I never, ever want to mess with that stuff. And then 10 years later, I'm in college. I've helped to start a fraternity. I am that guy that when he walks into the room, knows how to make the party start. And I'm starting to make some of the same choices. I'm starting to become the same kind of person that I stared at that day as an eight-year-old on the porch. 
that I'm starting to become defined by my addictions and that I'm starting to let a substance dictate how I live out my life. You see, the reality is sitting in the back seat of that car as an eight-year-old, I never planned on becoming like my granddad. Never did. And yet, fast forward 10 years later, and I was starting to follow in the same path he was. And I imagine that many of you in this room can relate to that, that none of us, none of us ever planned to get into a violent relationship. None of us ever planned to ruin ourselves financially with debt and to make horrible decisions in gambling. None of us ever plan on getting involved with someone who's already married and wrecking our relationship with our spouse. That none of us plan on falling in love with someone who has no character and whose life is ruled by habits that are setting us on a collision course for disaster. None of us plan, like me, to become addicted to anything. And none of us plan on losing the respect of our children because of choices we make. But you know what else? Very few of us actually plan not to do those things. As an eight-year-old on transition to 18 years old, I didn't plan not to become an addict. I think the storyline of Samson cries out to us that it's not about you planning on becoming something. It's about putting things in your life that protect you from... It's the how not to plan. It's us putting in those kind of things that recognize that we can fail and so we need guardrails. That the guardrails are the plan of how not to fail. And I tell you about the backdrop of the story and Samuel and being the editor because it's important to realize when you read the story of Samson, Samuel is writing the story with details that Samuel, that, that Samson just wasn't alert to. He wasn't aware of him. He wasn't paying attention. He's kind of tunnel visioned with this woman named Delilah. He's missing everything else. And Samuel writes the story of Samson so that we can learn a lesson. He's, he's reminding us that Samson had all these strengths, but he never planned to not fail. He had all these strengths, but he never planned to not be derailed by his weakness. And there's a couple of verses I want to tease out for you because um, Samuel writes this story, almost this slow motion kind of tragedy to it, Phil. And uh, Samuel puts a couple of things in there that I think uh, answer the question of that over the course of this month I want to answer for you of how you put in guardrails. Like Samuel lays out for us embedded in the story what guardrails look like. Verse 4, it says that, that Samson goes down to the valley of Sorek. And that's where he falls in love with a woman named Delilah. And remember that Samuel, who writes this, is a Jew. And he's writing to a Jewish audience who would have understood this in the Hebrew language. They would have heard the word Sorek, and instantly something would have triggered for them. You see, that word Sorek is, is a word, it's, about a, it's a, a specific region in Israel in this, in this time period that's known for their red wine. It's known for a special type of grape in the vineyards that cover this whole area. But remember, Samuel is writing about a guy named Samson who is a Nazarite, who one of the three vows that he takes is to abstain from alcohol. And so here is Samson walking into the center of red wine production in the region. 
Like, that's not a good place to hang out if one of your core guiding principles in life is to abstain from alcohol. It's like saying my core guiding principle is to never gamble, but then take overnight trips to Las Vegas. It's just not a good idea to put yourself there. And what I think Samuel's saying to us with the story of Samson is that guardrails, some guardrails are external choices that we place in our life. They're boundaries. They're things that we implement. And if Samson had just taken his vow seriously, he would have never met Delilah. If he had taken his vow to abstain from alcohol seriously, he would have never entered into the region known for producing alcohol because he'd say, why go and camp out around this thing that I'm forbidden to drink? He'd have never met Delilah. Because if we want to put guardrails in our life, some of those guardrails are external choices. They're boundaries that we place in our life. Some of them, uh, I think another kind of external kind of guardrail is the community that we place ourselves around. Samuel's writing this story about Samson, and Samuel has some details. Have you ever noticed that people around you see things happening in your life before you notice them? That people see the slow motion tragedy while it feels so fast for you? And after the fact, they're like, yeah, I saw that. That Community is another one of those guardrails that we can place ourselves around. And and when I say community, I don't mean the rows that you're sitting in. Because you're not looking at one another, you're looking at me. You see, inherent in how we do church, we believe that circles, these groups, are actually the better way of doing things. Uh, This past week at Dedham Day, our town representative comes up to me and one of his staff members, and he says, "Uh, I just want you to know how much Encounter Church is loved. I sit in community meetings frequently, and the thing that I hear oftentimes is that that Encounter Church is the the solution to a lot of the problems that we deal with in our community. Or someone will say, have you called Encounter Church and let them know about that need? He's sitting there and he's bragging. What he was bragging on is you and our ability to have groups and circles that make a difference. It's groups of you that serve in the community. It's groups of you that put on these community events that make a difference. It's groups of you, not rows of you, that have the lasting impact. It's because we need one another to see the things in our lives that we're blind to. And it's That community and it's those choices, those boundaries, those external things that are the first part of the guardrails that Samuel was pressing into. And the second one, though, is a subtle thing I want to kind of point out to. Verse 20, probably one of the most tragic verses in in Samson's story, maybe all the Old Testament. It says, verse 20, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. This is his inner thought. And he says, But he didn't know that the Lord had left them. See, it's not just external choices that are guardrails. It's also our sensitivity to the internal voices that serve as guardrails too. Samson had become so cold to the internal voice of God that he didn't even notice it was missing. Right? He wakes up. He's been living so, so naively, He's been living so long ignoring that inner, that inner voice inside that keeps saying, hey, this is a bad idea. Hey, this is a bad idea. That when it finally stops saying this is a bad idea, he doesn't even have an idea that it's happened. 
And that those internal voices, whether you're a Christian and you believe it's God saying to you, hey, I'm trying to protect you, or whether maybe you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure about that God thing, but maybe it's just common sense kind of raising a red flag. Reality is, is that there's something on the inside that should alert us when we start to get into dangerous places. That internal voice that's speaking to us, that's telling us, hey, bad idea. It's that voice that says, while we're starting to flirt with our coworker, that says, I don't think this is right. Or that moment right before we say something stupid, or after we say something stupid, where we say, I shouldn't have said that. Like that internal voice is a guardrail too. And the danger, the reason I, I think Samuel wants to make us aware of these guardrails is because we have to become sensitive to them because most of the time we don't even notice they're in our lives. And if we don't notice whether or not they're in our lives or not in our lives, we don't discover that until we have a tragedy and we're taken off course and we find ourselves in a place filled with regret, heartbroken, with a wake of destruction behind us. And this series is about installing guardrails because I know from my own lives and probably from your life too that maybe some of our greatest regrets that we have could have been prevented had we placed some external choices of boundaries and community in our life and had we been sensitive to the internal voice telling us this is a bad idea. That we could have avoided those things that fill us with regret and be in a whole better place than we are today. That our marriage could look different, our finances might look different, our friendships would look different. Maybe even our own health or our schedule. And over the course of this month, I want to unpack for you and for I, and on this journey, for us to work through together, what does it look like to practically put guardrails into our life in all these various arenas? But before I go, I want to give you one more thing. Because I recognize some of you are sitting there saying, okay, this is great. Guardrails, great conversation. I'm looking forward to October 2016, but you know what would have been really helpful? October 1999. Or a guardrail conversation would have been really helpful about a year and a half ago. Because I went off course. And I crashed. And my relationship has been destroyed. My, my relationship with my children have been destroyed. My finances are in ruin. I've lost my job. And I want to give you this one verse this one simple statement that is really powerful, verse 22. It says that Samson, he's in prison, and it says this, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And I love that phrase, that word but. My four-year-old knows that when she hears bad news, or when she's not getting what she wants, that if the word but comes at the end, it, it's not done. Like, there's about to be a plot twist. And it's about to be a turn of events that maybe it doesn't work out the way she wanted it to, but, but, and I, I see it. She'll lean in. Like, what'd you just say? But. But what? And I think Samuel is wanting to say to us, maybe some of us find ourselves in a place today where we are just like Samson. And I would like to say over you what, what Samuel is saying to us, but... It doesn't have to end that way. But you don't have to stay in that prison. But 
your relationship doesn't have to be defined by your past. And that's why we can say and sing the songs that we sing of come to Him. Lean into Him. Cry out to Him that He enjoys, that He is able to step into our biggest disasters and apply, but God. And that for some of us, before we leave today, I just want to carve out a little bit of space in response with a song for us to focus on the fact that maybe your past is filled with tragedy, but your future doesn't have to be. And that there is a God who sits over this story of Samson who is merciful, who is gracious, who is forgiving, who is loving, who looks at Samson blinded, broken in a prison and says, but. But. And so like we do every single week, we, we want to carve out a little bit of a space and respond in a song. Because we want this to be hopeful and we want this to be helpful. And we recognize there are our lives, our pace, our rhythms, Patriots came. All those things quickly come into our lives and we can forget the lessons. We can forget the, the things that maybe the inner voice said to you today. Maybe even God spoke to you today. And so we carve out with this song just a time of reflection where you can write in the app, maybe your takeaway or where this thing, you know, hey, what, what caught my attention and how do I put some traction to that today in my relationship or tomorrow at work? So the band's going to lead us in a song called Our God. It's a reminder that our God is greater. He's greater than our past. That he's greater than the tragedies and the failures. That our God is love, that he is for us, and that he desires us to, to partner with him with these guardrails in our lives so that we can experience a year filled with better decisions and fewer regrets.